Adventure for me is flying across the planet to a country I've never visited before. Adventure is trying foods that I've picked up from a vendor in a chaotic early morning market, or exploring the winding alleys of a centuries-old city. But what does adventure mean to you? I'm Erin, and you're listening to Alpaca My Bags, where we talk about how to be responsible travelers and more. And today we're chatting with an incredible adventurer, Mario Rigby. Mario was born in the Turks and Caicos Islands, spent his childhood in Germany, and then moved to Toronto, Canada at the age of 16. He's always had a tremendous drive to push the limits in athletics, exploration, and anything else he puts his mind to. According to Mario, it started in high school with a love of track and field and a realization that he wanted to be challenged more. And so in 2015, he started a two-year-long trek walking and kayaking across the continent of Africa. More recently, he spent almost an entire month kayaking the full lengths of Lake Ontario, completely alone. That's 355 kilometers. Now, Mario says that every year he'd like to take on a brand new challenge. Mario's adventuring requires extreme dedication and commitment. It involves tons of logistical planning and training, both physical and mental. Mario takes on adventures and challenges that, frankly, not everyone can pull off. But that doesn't mean that not everyone can experience adventures. Mario wants to show the world that you can adventure in a way that is right for you. Let's dive in. So Mario, it seems like your taste for adventure has been lifelong. Where do you think this pursuit of adventure came from or started? You know, I think when I was a little baby, like um, my mom had married uh, my stepdad, who is German. So we moved to Germany. That ended up becoming my first kind of cultural experience, my first language. And, you know, and we traveled all over the world um, through my dad's uh, business. And then we moved back to the Caribbean, which is like an opposite culture to what it was in Germany. And then from there, moving to Canada. So we were like constantly always moving. But it was hardly ever for like kind of a pleasure or leisure. It was more like for work. Yeah. And every Sunday we, you know, we would sit together and watch Discovery Channel. And so that kind of like led us to a kind of love for the outdoors, for nature and all those kinds of things. And we saw it as a communal event. And so I guess like naturally I was attracted to kind of the outdoors and all these like adventurous things that I'm into now. Wow. So it sounds like you had exposure to like culture and nature and adventure all from childhood. And then in 2015, you began your first major challenge, which was trekking and kayaking 12,000 kilometers across Africa from Cape Town to Cairo. And this journey took you two years. How and when did it initially occur to you to pursue this kind of challenge? What inspired you to take this on? Well, 2015 was kind of like a breakthrough year. You know, I was faced with a few options. I was running a uh, fitness studio in downtown Toronto. And I could have either kept going with that and 
blow up the business, make it as big as possible. But then knowing that that's kind of what my life is going to be about for the rest of my life, which isn't a bad idea at the time. But, you know, I, I was definitely yearning something quite different inside of me. And for me, that was like I was yearning a real challenge. I was yearning a physical and a mental challenge. So I wanted to do something greater than that. And that that's just for myself. And for me, I wanted to to see what I'm really capable of doing to not just to see what I'm capable of doing, but to see what humanity is capable of, of doing. And the only way to really find out is to go out there. That's amazing. I relate to like the feeling of like being happy with your life at home, but wondering what else is out there, especially like when you know that there is such a massive world with so much to offer that you haven't discovered yet. It's sort of mm -hmm. this feeling of constant, like, oh, like, what could I be doing if I wasn't here? Right. I asked myself the ultimate question. What would I be doing if I wasn't here? <laughs> and I put that to the challenge to the very max. I really like how transparent you are about the tough moments that you encountered on this trek. Um, so, for example, you contracted malaria, you were dodging bullets with government soldiers in a war zone, you survived an attack by wild dogs. And for me, it's really important to be honest about both the good and the bad in travel and adventure. And I think that especially when discussing Africa, a lot of people, especially in the West, associate the continent with unfair stereotypes. Could you share with us examples of these stereotypes that people have, even yourself, and how you experienced them on the trek, and how you might have disproved these stereotypes while trekking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was guilty of having those stereotypes as well. I remember the first day that I landed in Cape Town and I was thinking, wow, this is such a beautiful airport. And, um, you know, like, it's just, I was so taken aback at how beautiful that part of Africa was and, you know, many other parts as well, even the parts that weren't really developed uh, in, in modern standards or in Western standards, it still had this beauty and this comfort and this cleanliness um, to, to those, um, to those places. So I would say the first one is, is, you know, how incredibly kind African people in general are, you know, they believe in the Ubuntu philosophy where they believe that one action cannot, I mean, one action will affect the many and the many actions will affect the one. And so they believe in this very communal way of thinking, which is incredible. I think, you know, the two years that I walked Africa, um, a completely uh, homeless person or a starving child, unless it's in a, in a fractured zone, like a war zone or something like that, or, but other than that, the people in Eastern Africa where I went, they wouldn't allow their neighbors to just starve or to be dehydrated or to be in a position of not being able to meet their basic needs. And I think this is a lesson that, I mean, in the West, we could absolutely learn. You know, I always make the comparison that in Africa, they understand life. And in the West, we understand how to accumulate wealth and material. And um, I think those are the two big differences. Yeah, there's definitely a psychology of like individualism in the West. The thing is, you know, in the West, we've been uh, fighting the wars against cultures that have 
been um so-called collective and so we've we've made it like kind of like an enemy way of thinking that if we you know work all together then you know we call it communism or socialism or, or things like that which is which is crazy to me because if you look at how nature works or how the animal kingdom works the wildlife they all work together you know you know i've seen um uh, pictures of ponds where during droughts where lions are sharing that with zebras and crocodile and elephants and they're all sharing this water peacefully because they know that the lion knows that if it scares the zebra off the zebra no longer gets water they'll die and the lion won't have any food for the future and this is um a very intelligent system and we live in a very unintelligent system I'm by no means a political scientist or anything, but I remember like as a child reading about the concept of socialism and just asking my dad, like, why do people not like this? This sounds really great. This sounds like something that is very community oriented that like in a child's brain, it seemed very natural to me. And I remember feeling like very disconcerted at the fact that like people really don't like it for some reason. So it sounds like human connection and community building is definitely an important part of why you take on adventures and challenges. And I think this really sets you apart from a lot of the like sensationalist coverage we see of extreme adventurers. Like there's this guy, Bear Grylls, who takes on challenges that have a lot of like shock factor. And I don't get the impression that shock factor is a goal of yours. <laughs> Would you say that the experience of the adventure is more important to you than crossing the finish line? 100%. Um, for me, it's always about the experience, the places that I'm going to and the people or the wildlife that I'm affecting or it's affecting me kind of thing. I want to show people and I do try to, you know, do extreme things, but that's not the highlight. The highlight really is I'm doing these extreme things because that's for me the best way to explore those places, walking by foot and kayaking, uh, the Great Lakes to me is a way to really experience those areas, those places, because I can't like just easily escape a village or um, a tribe. I have to figure out how to communicate with them. I have to figure out how to live with them. There are troubles along the way and I have to be able to solve those, those, those problems. And I think um, we are moving away from, the the explorers as you mentioned are sensationalists i think we have to move in a trend uh, in, in a different um, transition i think we have to become more community oriented because the whole world is becoming like a like a small community it's becoming a global village as an explorer we can't just go out and exploit places anymore and say look, this is my game and I've just conquered it. And, you know, these people I'm going to look at as if like I'm looking at them through a TV screen. No, they are part of us and we are part of them. And I think it's kind of my duty to change the narrative of that. I enjoy telling the stories of, of people who don't necessarily have the chance to tell those stories. Yeah, I think you touch on a criticism that's pretty ripe in the travel industry 
this idea that people will travel to a place and have like zero engagement with with the culture there. And then it's like, what have you really experienced and what has this travel meant if you haven't had that kind of engagement? So you mentioned that while trekking, you you basically had to engage a lot with local people. What was the reception like when you encountered, especially rural communities? Like, how did you communicate with them? And are there any memorable moments that you can share that you had? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've run into hundreds of communities. So it depends on what kind of story you want. There are communities where I've been approached by pitchforks, knives, and guns, <laughs> just because they were afraid of uh, who I was. Um, I remember an entire village came together. This was in Tanzania in a completely rural area. I was pitching my tent in this area, and I remember that it wasn't the best hiding area. And a farmer had gone by, and he saw me. And at this point, I knew I, I thought, okay, I need to leave. I've been exposed. But uh, I decided uh, to stay for some re- for whatever reason, you know, breaking my own rules. About three hours later, he came back with like an entire army of people. <laughs> and they're all carrying like weapons and things like that. And I'm just like, uh, you know, at this point, like I'm pretty rugged. So I wasn't even scared. I was just like, oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> And I had to convince them in a language that I didn't even speak. That actually made me really good at speaking Swahili. Because how do you plead to someone that, like, no, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just here. I need to sleep. But I did my best. And I was able to translate as much as I can. And uh, the people let me go. And then they basically said, we will protect you. Make sure that you're okay. My dearest alpaca pal, Katie here, producer for the show. I wanted to take a quick second to thank you for listening to this episode today. Yes, you. Thank you. At this point, this podcast is three seasons strong. And if you've been with us since day one, well, you're an OG alpaca pal. So wear that badge with honor. Now, there's an official way to become a head of the herd, or even an alpaca pal for life. And that is by becoming a patron on Patreon. What the heck is Patreon? Well, it's a platform where you can subscribe to monetarily support your favorite creators on a monthly basis. Yes, we are looking for monetary support, but rest assured, Alpaca My Bags will always remain free. But with some financial support, we'll have the ability to create more content, make alpaca-powered donations to organizations that we love, like Black Lives Matter and No White Saviors, and pay our guests. You can choose a tier from $5 a month up to $25 if you're feeling extra generous. And each tier includes some awesome incentives and gifts. We've tried really hard to make it something that you'll really like. There's things like behind-the-scenes content, early announcements, but also exclusive opportunities to submit questions to upcoming guests, schedule video calls with either me or Aaron about travel or podcasts or whatever you like, and even a hand-drawn illustration by yours truly. So if you love the show, please consider becoming a patron. You can find more info in the description of this episode. Now, back to the show. I know that one of the goals for this trek was to inspire other Black people to get out and explore the world. 
And I saw you mention in another interview that you felt this way because most of the people who'd done this particular trek from South to North Africa before you were white Westerners. How has a lack of diversity in the outdoor and adventure industry impacted you when you're planning your adventures? And what barriers are BIPOC and minorities facing in the outdoor industry? I would say like BIPOC and minorities um, are facing a lot of, I think, issues that are kind of invisible, that don't really uh, seem like they're problems. But I'll give you an example. For instance, if I'm going, yeah, if I'm going hiking on a scenic route and, you know, I want to look at beautiful buildings, condos, mansions or whatever, you know, I will get the police called on me. I've had security called on me numerous times uh, for basically just being there and looking like I'm about to rob the place or having people basically come up to me and tell me like, oh, do you need help? Do you need directions? And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Um, because, you know, I'm one of the board of directors for the Bruce Trail Club, which is uh, here in Toronto. It's like one of the biggest um, hiking trail clubs in Canada. As one of the board of directors, I go on these hiking trails um, from time to time just to to spend time. And yet people still approach me and they, you know, they ask me like, oh, are you lost? Are you okay? Do you need, you know, <laughs> do you need to find your way around? And you're just thinking like, what? Like, do you do you ask everyone this? And then in an industry level, we are, when I say we are, you know, I'm talking about minorities in the outdoors, we are facing a lot of challenges because companies would look at us and say, well, you're not very marketable because the majority of our clients and customers are white male and then female. And my argument always is, well, this is your opportunity and your chance to really have more people involved. This is, you know, why wouldn't you want to have the rest of the human population a part of this movement as opposed to like a very small pocket of people? And I feel like all of these points that you've made just sort of, they're all a constant suggestion that BIPOC and Black people don't belong in the outdoors. Which... It's, so, it's so ridiculous. It, it, it it kind of, I don't know, it, it baffles me to the highest level. Um, you know, when we were kids in the Caribbean, we were constantly outdoors. We were constantly going on hikes and, and uh, fishing and going out on the boats and camping. We just never called it those things. So there are different terms and, you know, different cultural expressions of what it means to be in the outdoors. And I feel like in the West, we go in the outdoors for us. You know, we go in the outdoors for peace and quiet and serenity. It's almost like we see the outdoors as a backdrop, as uh, a place that is um, there for us. But if you go to like, you know, the Maasai tribe in Kenya and Tanzania, it's not a backdrop. It's they rely on the land, you know. So I don't know. I feel like <laughs> we uh, we need to change culturally and philosophically how we think about ourselves and our connection to the rest of the world, but also our connection to the environment and wildlife. I feel like what you're saying is, especially in the West, we've created sort of categories or industries around the experience of the outdoors. And mm -hmm. I think like that's a really relatable feeling because like, even like as 
a woman, I sometimes feel like I can't go camping by myself because like I don't have the skills to camp. And it feels like there's these like barriers of access to some elements of the outdoors and they've been created because we've created these industries where like to go camping you need to have all the latest met gear or you need to like have a really great harness to go rock climbing and there's all these barriers of access that have been created by these industries whereas it sounds like what you're saying in other parts of the world like it's not that way you just you are in the outdoors and it becomes part of your daily experience of life. Exactly. And that also causes elitism as well. And when you, you create elitism in such a way, you really discourage a lot of people who don't have the uh, the money to, to go out there and, and or have accessibilities to the outdoors. This year we worked with uh, MyStand, which is a, a charitable organization here in Toronto. And we focused on particularly black, underprivileged youth in the downtown Toronto area. And we are helping them develop skills that will translate to success in the future. So whether it's through music production, uh, video um, editing, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the latest one, which is like hiking, um, you know, that's the one that I'll be leading. We want to get them through these skill sets so that they feel confident that they can do whatever they want in life. But it's not enough to, as a as an outdoor brand, for instance, to just advertise to them, but also to get help give them access. In your experiences so far, have you gotten the sense that the industry is diversifying at all? Incredibly slowly. There's also like the facade of, um, of inclusion, kind of plastering, BIPOC and minorities on their websites and on social media platforms, but not really paying them or not um, bringing them on as like official ambassadors. So there's still a lot of struggle with that. Um, I know a lot of great athletes like pro climbers who, who definitely deserve to have like the full sponsorship package, but you know, they won't get it because it's just not a part of what that, organization is looking for in terms of, you know, ethnic backgrounds and things like that, which is really sad. And, you know, because of that, we're missing a lot of talent and we're missing a lot of opportunities. And we're also missing a lot of diversity. You know, why would you want to homogenize the outdoor industry? It doesn't make any sense. Like, don't you want to see like the rainbows and colors of how being in the outdoors could look like? Do we only want to have, you know, people wearing the latest mech gear? Or do you want to see all different kinds of like possibilities of how you can be in the outdoors, but yet keep it sustainable? So your work with my stand, it really like points to how you're emphasizing a purpose and a goal for not just like the individual challenges that you take on, but like your whole approach to enjoying the outdoors. What is the reason behind having a defined purpose for your adventures? I think this is like, unfortunately, a unique thing. Not a lot of public figures that are in adventuring take this approach. Does this approach keep you motivated when you've taken on like especially challenging uh, adventures like kayaking Lake Ontario, for example, was a huge thing to take on. And I'm wondering if like having that sense of purpose behind you makes you feel more motivation when you're in the midst of that adventure. Yeah, um, A, it, it d- definitely does help motivate me. 
Um, and two, if, if, if I don't see like a sense of purpose behind something that I can do that is great and can reach the largest amount of people, you know, then I always ask myself, well, well, why am I doing it? And I believe if you're doing something impactful and a lot of people are watching you, then there definitely needs to be some mindfulness behind it. You know, I think that a lot of, you know, celebrities, a lot of other great explorers have a lot of potential to help shape the way that the world is. And I think we can mend our way into a world where we become more matriarchal and become more um, communal thinking without looking at it as like, you know, um, categorizing it as like socialism or communism or anything like that. Regardless of what we think and regardless of where the world is going, you know, we're moving in the direction of, uh, of the global village, which I was talking about before, which is the third industrial revolution where everything is interconnected. The best way to be prepared for it is to create narratives and stories. Um, I believe we have a great opportunity to help guide people into this kind of new world, this new way of being. And the more people are being mindless uh, and not having purpose behind what you're doing, it's just like all it's doing really is just like extending the inevitable. Yeah, I like how you've touched on the importance of intent and mindfulness in what you do. And I think like the classic example that we notice in travel these days is that there's this do it for the gram mentality. It's been rightfully criticized a lot. Because I think like what happens is then Instagram has the potential to be super inspiring, but it can also have like a negative impact when you're just scrolling through Instagram and seeing these like, just like moments of someone's adventure that can lead into dangerous situations that they aren't prepared for if someone sees that and thinks like, oh, I, I'm going to go out and do that. So I'm wondering what you think about the idea of inspiring people to take on seriously challenging adventures, because that... I mean, like you do share stories of your very challenging adventures. Is there a way that you can do that that's responsible and doesn't encourage other people to take on more than perhaps they can handle? Like, how do you strike a balance between inspiration, but also like reminding people to stay within their own boundaries? Like, okay, I'll give you an example. This year, um, I had an expedition planned out for none of it do a hiking trip along the Arctic to look at how environmental changes due to climate change has affected the indigenous communities. And, you know, we had to cancel that expedition because um, none of it had closed their borders to, to outsiders who are from outside of that province. We had a couple of choices. We could, because we had a lot of connection there and we could have probably you know, made our way in there anyways and recorded our uh, documentary. But we, we clearly decided that this is, um, this is the, the right thing for them to, to, to have done is to close the borders. You know, these people aren't getting the healthcare treatment that we are in Ontario. So it would have been a very irresponsible thing for me to have gone to that province, even though it's within the country. And so that's one way of, of kind of looking at how to be a responsible explorer, you know, just because it's in your head. And we've been working on this for, for so long that we, we had, you know, so much time and effort put into this. 
Um, I also have, uh, you know, um, my policy, which is like, leave no trace behind. And that's the kind of responsibility I'd like to spread and make sure that everyone else does so that um, we, we don't, um, you know, harm our environment more than it, it already has been. To relate it back to like my earlier comment about the shock factor and adventurism, it's like I think that you are doing a wonderful job of instead of like trying to provide shock value, you're showing no, like this is an example of how you can go about adventuring in a responsible and ethical way. And I want to talk a bit about like boundaries. You know what you can take on mentally and physically, and that has shaped your boundaries for adventure but not all of us have these same boundaries like for example I would not be able to hack cycling across Canada I would need to start (laughs) with something more within my own boundaries like both physically and mentally so what do you think about this notion of considering our personal boundaries when we set out on an adventure if you want to go on an adventure um, or an expedition and you want to go beyond you know what you've done previously you're gonna always be uncomfortable because you're gonna push boundaries and how i look at it is if i'm going to push the boundaries you know um once you've passed a certain threshold i might as well go all the way i don't really see the difference between um you know going let's say 500 kilometers to 12,000 kilometers to me it's kind of essentially the same thing except you know it's just elongated time um you're gonna go through the same pain um (laughs) you're gonna go through through the same torture because it all happens within the first like you know 250 kilometers and then after that it's super kosher so (laughs) might as well keep doing it (laughs) you might as well just keep it going and that's how i look at it really even with the kayaking um lake ontario I had full body muscle spasms the first three or four days. I couldn't go more than 10 kilometers without my body just seizing. And it was just, it was awful. It was painful. But I knew because, you know, I, I, I come from an athletic background. So I, I kind of know when my body is peaking. And once your body peaks, then you kind of want to maintain that level. So for instance, uh, if I'm going five kilometers an hour on, on the kayak, uh, I want to maintain that because I know that my body can maintain it for at least 20 kilometers. And then if I go six or seven kilometers an hour, I know that I can do it for like 10, 15 kilometers. And so I make these calculations. Um, and that's just from like getting used to knowing what your body is capable of doing. If you are someone who is pushing your personal boundaries. I think you have to understand yourself personally a little bit before you can push it to the ultimate level because you have to know what it's going to feel like when your body is completely exhausted. You have to know what it feels like when your body is completely, um, you know, physically drained kind of thing. And once you're used to knowing what your body and your mind is going through at peak level, then then you can make a very informed decision on how far you can push yourself. And so for me, I make these calculations all the time. And that's how I can determine whether, you know, this expedition is right for me or not. You know, there were many other expeditions that were offered to me and, uh, you know, I had to decline them because it just wasn't right for me. You know, I was offered to 
being in a few races, for instance. And, you know, I felt like, no, my racing days is all over. There's a reason why I left it. And so I didn't participate in it, although it could have given me massive TV coverage and all that kind of stuff. And just for me personally, that's like pushing beyond my own personal boundaries. Yeah, like on the idea of racing, I feel like your approach to adventuring is much more like calculated and slow rather than this like goal of like speed and crossing the finish line like before other people. Because I've noticed like you take on all your adventures alone. It's not about like comparing yourself to another person. It's it's kind of similar to, I would say, in track and field. Yes, it looks like you're racing, but if you look at like Usain Bolt, the fastest guy on the planet who's ever lived, you know, he doesn't race against people. You know, he races against and doesn't even race against himself. He just basically pushes his own boundaries. And, you know, you're the, the only thing that you're going against really is time. And so, you know, track and field is such an individualistic sport because when you're running, it's just you in your own lane. That's kind of maybe where my my physical challenges came from was being in my own lane and, you know, focusing on my own challenge. It's just, uh, you know, actually those things kind of go through my, my mind as well. Like when I was right, I remember when I was <laughs> riding my bike through the Rockies, I said, I kept thinking over and over in my head, almost, I think I might've been saying this out loud too. And I said, this is my own pain. This is my own pain. This is my own pain. And I don't even know why I was saying that. That was such a weird, this is a weird thing to say. Like, why would I say that? No one, no one's around me. And I think what I was trying to convey to myself was that the pain was actually, um, sort of like an illusion in a sense, like, and yeah, I, you know, I've noted like, yes, I am paying attention to it, but I need to keep pushing through with it. So I'm having this like constant dialogue between myself and, uh, and my body in terms of, you know, understanding where your personal limitations are is like starts in your own mind. Um, so at the top of the show, I described a couple feelings of adventure that I've experienced, and I wanted to show how we all can have a really different idea of what adventure feels like. So I know you've had very elaborate adventures abroad, but this past summer, for example, I'm sure because of the pandemic, you opted to take on a challenge in your own backyard that was close to home. So why was it important for you to share a domestic adventure? It was important because I think I fell in love with, um, you know, the landscape of this country when I cycled across Canada. You know, the one thing that I really wish I did was I wish I stayed along the lake a little bit longer. And so I wanted to experience the lake um, further. And so my original expedition was to kayak all the Great Lakes in North America. And, you know, that didn't uh, pan through because... Uh, because of the budget and because of the time. It was getting closer to fall. And so by the time I would have finished, I would have probably ended in, you know, sometime in February. So I decided, okay, well, this is probably not going to happen. I don't want to fall in ice at the moment. So I planned for cycling across Canada. It was a lot faster. It was easier, uh, easier to learn. So I learned a lot of my kind of domestic adventure traveling, also from being a kid, being raised in the Caribbean. 
we loved going around on the island, my brother and I. We we would go uh, hiking through the bush, and we would actually eat the fruit that were along the way. We would eat the plants. So we were very, like, in tune with nature. We were very, like, okay, cool. Well, there's sapodillas over here. There's tamarinds over there and mango, uh, guava, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had access to all of these things in the bush, and we could go forever. This is where you live. And where you live, you really need to know a lot of people don't know where they are. You know, they haven't even gone beyond outside of their province. A lot of uh, people that I know here in Toronto, they haven't really uh, ventured off to the East Coast or to the West Coast. And it's such a beautiful place to go to. And it's so different and so vibrant. It's almost a crime not to see your own place. That's crazy. As opposed to spending a lot of money and, and wasting CO2 on visiting faraway places. So to wrap up, I wanted to ask what adventure is going to be next for you? Do you have anything in the works? Oh, so many things in the works. Um, but it's more about like, let's see what happens with the pandemic. You know, there's possibilities of, of a docuseries. There's a documentary for an expedition called The West African Slave Trade. So essentially, it's just retracing my West African um, slave lineage where, you know, where we came from and kind of like uncovering the history and the science behind uh, the West African slave trade. And of course, I'll be doing expeditions throughout the series going along the the Atlantic Ocean using human-powered energy or tracking South America through the Amazonian River, et cetera, et cetera. So that's going to be a pretty big one. And of course, you know, there's like uh, Project EVA, which is the electric vehicle around Africa. That's been on pause for a couple of years now because there's no such thing as a vehicle right now that exists that can do it. <laughs> um, that is a commercial vehicle, so like an off-road commercial vehicle that's purely electric. And we wanted to do this expedition because we wanted to use this vehicle as a mascot to promote sustainable um, development in Africa. Well, thank you so much, Mario. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I'm so excited to see which of these adventures you get to take on next. I just wanted to give you an op opportunity to share any links or organizations that you'd like our listeners to know about. So you can uh, visit my Instagram, which is at Mario Rigby, or you can also check out mystand.org, which is on Instagram as mystand.org, and you can look at making some donations to um, the at-risk youth there. Otherwise, you know, get out, be adventurous, and be mindful. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lohr. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Instagram, and consider showing us your love on Patreon. On Patreon, you can pledge $5 a month, which directly supports the making of the show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon.